Well, hello and welcome back to From the Pastor's Bookshelf. It has been quite a while since we've done one of these, and so we're really excited to bring you this special episode. And in this episode of From the Pastor's Bookshelf, where we go through books and uh, talk about culture and politics and everything, we are going through a, a special book. This one is called Before You Vote, Seven Questions That Every Christian Should Ask. This is by uh, David Platt. And so, Jeremy, um, you are the one who read this book and have been really spending a long time over the past few weeks and quite a while diving into the whole realm of Christians and politics. And so why don't you talk about why we're doing this book and why are we doing this book right now? Yeah. Well, the timing is, you know, clear, right? Yeah. The election is upon us. Uh, but more than that, um, this would be relevant even if the election wasn't in, you know, just a couple of weeks. Um, the political atmosphere uh, is never, I don't want never in our history, but certainly right now in my lifetime, it's never been more charged. Mm. It's never been more uh, combative uh, and no, never more in, uh, so invasive, meaning that it's really hard to ignore the yeah. political conversation. And obviously uh, the political, what happens in the political realm matters a great deal. It really matters because policies uh, impact the whole nation, impact real lives, real people living real lives. And so um, it, it's, it's, it's combative, it's charged, it matters, it's quite tense right now. And so there's a, a big question that every Christian has to ask, and that is, how do I engage in this in a way that's Christ-like? I think there's a sense of, I should do something, or do, do I withdraw because it's just overwhelming, or it just feels nasty, or do I engage? Well, as we'll go and talk about, and I think uh, Platt lays out well in the book, we are to engage. Uh, but what does that look like? And, and one of our goals in this book, as well as a couple other bookshelves we want to do after uh, the election, because this atmosphere isn't going away, um, is unpacking uh, and understanding how we can develop a more thoughtful, careful, and Christ-centered approach to politics and government. So that's why we're doing it right now, is that as, as a pastor, I want to help uh, our congregation and anyone who, uh, any Christian who would, is eager to listen to uh, figure that out. How can we engage in this realm, uh, doing so in a way that we feel, you know what, I'm honoring Christ in the way that I'm engaging in this. I'm honoring Christ in the way that I'm voting, in the way that I'm um, having conversation uh, with folks in the midst of this season. Mm. Good, good. Well, um, what I wanted you to do next is I just wanted to read through um, what all seven of these questions are, and then instead of uh, diving into each and every one, we're going to focus on five of them, and then we're going to encourage you to read the book as well so yeah. that you can read about uh, those, those five and the other two that we're not going to have time to get into. And so here they are. Number one, does God call me to vote? Number two, who has my heart? Three, what does my neighbor need? What is the Christian position? How do I weigh the issues? Am I eager to maintain unity in the church? And then lastly, so how do I vote? And so why don't we just dive right into that first one. Yeah. Uh, does God call us to vote? It's something that obviously the Bible doesn't explicitly talk about, yeah. but we live in a very different time than the time the Bible is written. And so yeah. does God call us to vote? Um, yeah, that's uh, he starts with that question because that's... Um, 
uh, an important one because that's the most fundamental way we can engage in the political arena is through our vote. Uh, not many of us are probably uh, holding office. Not many of us are part of a special interest group or a lobbyist or something like that where we're engaged in the actual machine of politics. And so um, what he lays out is he starts by asking the question, well, what is government called to do? And we see this throughout Scripture, uh, Romans 13, uh, for example, where it lays out that uh, the government's role and uh, is uh, has a role, and it's been instituted by God to do justice, essentially, to do justice, to promote good and restrain evil. Uh, justice, uh, his definition of justice, is um, that which is right for all people, as exemplified in the character of God and expressed in the Word of God. So, government exists to in its uh, unique sphere to uh, promote good and restrain evil. Uh, Thomas Hobbes had this whole idea of uh, people choosing, consenting to the rule of a sovereign because in the state of nature, everyone's just against one another and it's a chaotic mess and you're not just protecting yourself from, um, you're, you're having to protect yourself from everyone because justice is only as strong as your own personal might. So the idea of a government entity coming in and uh, saying, you know what, if you hurt that person, there's going to be consequences. And so, um, according to Hobbes, the idea was it was in the benefit of the group to submit to a sovereign um, in order that they would uh, only have to worry about the, the sovereign misbehaving because the sovereign was going to deal with uh, others misbehaving. And, you know, the sovereign would could do that because it was, it was in the sovereign's self-interest to say, we want to uh, engage in behavior and to such a degree that I'm not going to make things worse than a state of nature. <laughs> you know, if the sovereign goes too yeah. far, then people rebel and rise as one and say, we don't want your tyrannical rule or what have you. Is this, uh, so, is this Hobbes the Tiger from Calvin and Hobbes? Well, it's who, it's who, he oh, yeah, yeah, it's who he was named after. Yeah, it's who he was named after. But anyway, so that's the idea of what a government is supposed to do. And I think everyone would agree pretty clearly, by Romans 13 is real clear, to do justice, to make sure that things are fair and that uh, right is being done. And so <clears throat> if you live in a monarchy, then you say, king, do that, and then I'm going to do my thing. But we don't live in a monarchy. We live in a represent, uh, uh, representative democracy, and so we get to vote. And so the point that Platt makes is that... Um, we are not just the governed. So every citizen of America who has voting rights, I guess, his, um, if you, which is everyone except children, I guess. <laughs> or criminals <laughs> in jail. <laughs> if, uh, yeah, true. Uh, anyway, but if you live in a representative democracy, you're not just the governed, you're the governors. Hmm. And so what he says is that we, yes, should a Christian vote? Well, he theorizes some ways you might be able to get out of that, but he said, basically, we have an obligation and a responsibility for, before God to do justice. And so we do that through our vote and engaging in the whole political conversation as a whole. Good. We're accountable before God to do that. Yeah, that's good. I, th I think one thing, um, one sort of biblical area, because obviously the Bible, it doesn't, it doesn't have a, you know, the voting is not the eleventh commandment yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, and like I said, it was written, like you mentioned, it was written in a very different time. Um, but I think that one of the biblical principles that can pertain to voting is the principle of stewardship. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, this representative democracy, this republic that we live in now, is a gift from the Lord. It's a common grace gift to us, to our society, to our neighbors. And so, I think part. Of 
of stewarding that gift is exercising the right to vote when we're when we're able to and when we can. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. So, a uh, second question here, um, and this one is is uh, deeply important, and that is the question: yeah. Who has my heart? So, let's talk about that. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's, uh, and I think uniquely so in a representative dem- uh, democracy, is because we are more invested in the process, and when you live in a country where they're. Um, um, that's done a decent job of doing justice. Obviously, no country has done a perfect job, you know, and certainly the United States has not done a perfect job historically or presently of doing justice. But when you live in a, a country where there's a, a high degree of freedom and you have rights that are protected by the government, those are enumerated, and you know, there's all kinds of uh, uh, apparatuses in place to protect the individual from things. When you're in a situation like that and you have that kind of freedom, it's very easy to put your hope in government to protect you, hmm. right? Now, obviously, it's government's yeah. role to do that, but if you look at your way of life and what you're comfortable and able to do, you have a strong—because it, it's, uh, it's good, um, we, we have a tendency to put our, our hope in it. We don't tend to have a, a tendency to, as, as humans, to put our hope in things that are horrible or dangerous or something, sure. right? But something that is— basically good, we want to hold on to it, make sure it doesn't turn bad. And he uses this example of a, a couple of friends of his, Fatima and Yassin, who live in a Middle Eastern country, and uh, Christianity is completely outlawed. And so uh, one of them is, uh, uh, came to Christ and in doing so ran the risk of being you know, killed. And the other friend is one who is a pastor. And his church has been invaded, bombed, and they live under daily threat of, of being found out and, and persecuted in the most extreme way thinkable. And so he says, needless to say, they've never put their hope in their government for <laughs> obvious reasons, right? Yeah. And there's some pushback saying, well, yes, wouldn't they benefit from being in a representative democracy like the United States? And he says, of course, but it's important that uh, to understand that the hope, the promises that the Bible gives are not to people living only in a, a country that's governed well. You know, the, the promise and the hope that is given to us in Scripture is universal and, and applies to every individual in every single circumstance. Thinking of um, Paul in Philippians 4, who said that he was content, you know, uh, even though he was in prison um, and was in prison because of his faith. Yeah, you know? so, under a tyrannical government. Yeah, exactly. Sure. And so he says this, I thought this was really good. He says, even if we lose every freedom and protection we have as followers of Jesus in the United States, and even if our government were to become a completely totalitarian regime, we could still live an abundant life as long as we didn't look to political leaders, platforms, or policies for our ultimate security and satisfaction. We still have hope, peace, joy, and confidence regardless of what happens in our government. And as long as, like Fatima and Yassin, we look to Jesus alone for these things, and all of our hope hinges on him. Mm-hmm. And so when the Christian is wanting to engage in the political arena, because you want to hold on to that kind of hope, it's a a natural tendency to say, well, I just want to back away from it altogether. But yet we have this obligation to engage. And so when you engage, though, um, because government does have such a powerful role in uh, people's uh, what kind of lives people get to live, because it's inarguable that uh, Yassin and uh, uh, Fatima would have a more comfortable life if they lived elsewhere. Yeah? 
Um, but we, when we're there's a temptation when we're engaging in it though to not co- uh, consciously and inadvertently begin to put our hope in government. And Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And what uh, Platt makes clear is he said, uh, while Caesar is worthy of our coin, only Jesus is worthy of our heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's a, uh, uh, that means a couple, couple different application points he draws out, we'll quickly look at. One is that <clears throat> When you're engaging in the political conversation and stuff, we need, because Jesus holds our allegiance, not a political party, not a particular candidate, we need to fight with different weapons than the political realm engages in. So we fight with humility. We fight with love, not hostility. Um, Although I will say, it's important to note that there is a place for anger. Uh, Paul, or Saul, rather, in uh, 1 Samuel 11, it says he heard about this horrible injustice that was being done to some of the Israelites. And when he heard about it, it says um, that the, the Spirit of the Lord rushed in upon him, and he became you know, angry, filled with anger. So when we see injustice happening in our land, and we have a place, like King Saul did, he had something he could do about it. When we have something we can do about, anger is appropriate. I'm not saying that if you see injustice happening throughout our land that we should not be angry, but when we engage in that um, realm, we want to make sure that we're doing so in a way that Christ holds uh, our allegiance. And so we're reflecting him as we engage, not reflecting what everyone else engaged in the political conversation is doing. So we should not become toxic as we engage in a toxic battle, saying, well, they fight dirty, so I'm going to fight dirty. They're all about power. I'm going to be all about power. They're slandering. I'm going to slander. Now, Jesus would say, no, 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 no. Only give Caesar your coin, not your heart. And so that's one way. Yeah, I think that's a really um, important balance that um, Jesus strikes in that in in his answer to the those people testing him in that. Yeah, in Luke that, twenty. Uh, yeah, when uh, they talk about that, and you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and give to God's what is God's. Um, and in our case, what we give to Caesar looks very different from what mm-hmm. they were able to give to Caesar. And so yeah. I think I just I love the balance there of saying no, politics does not get our heart, uh, the government does not get our hope. But I loved what you said in a sermon one time, um, where you said it is a good thing to hope for good political outcomes. It's a good thing to hope for a good outcome of this election. It's a good thing to hope for good policies to be put in place. But what we don't want to do is put our hope in those political outcomes. And so um, striking that balance, and that, that's a hard thing to do. It is. Because like you said, yeah. I think the tendency is either to get so involved that you end up fighting with the world's weapons, yeah. so to speak. Um, and we live in such an outrage culture right now. Yeah. It's almost impossible to not yeah. um, to not sin in our anger, right? Like yeah. Paul talks about, he says, in your anger, do not sin. Yeah. And then in another place, he says, don't let the sun go down in your anger and give the devil a foothold, because that's what it does. It, yeah. it is right to be angry, but it is also a huge temptation at the same time. It's a very powerful emotion. It's a very powerful thing, and oftentimes it gives the devil a foothold, especially yeah. in sort of the toxic, combative um, climate that we find ourselves in now. And so yeah. we want to be we want to be careful with that. Yeah, and government's been instituted instituted by God to do justice. The church has been instituted by God to preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so we don't want to engage in the political conversation in such a way that we. Uh, lose integrity from accomplishing the primary thing we've been called to do as Christ followers, yep. and that's to be a witness for Jesus. And so uh, very easy to uh, stray in that area. Um, 
uh, one thing he says that I thought was good. He said, no political party or candidate or party can provide us, protect us, save us, or satisfy us. Only Jesus can. So always reminding ourselves that Jesus, as, much, you know, as long as I'm hoping for this good thing to happen in the political realm, I want justice to be done. But you're only the one. That, you're my true protection. You're my high tower. You're my refuge. You're the one that can satisfy. The other thing that he points out that is uh, important is that he goes. I, I assume you already realize that no political candidate or party is perfect, right? I don't think anyone listening to this is going. Well, wait a second. I thought the Republicans were perfect, absolutely perfect, <laughs> or the Democrats for that matter, or their Green Party or whatever. Yeah. You know, no one's saying that. But he said that. Said if we're not careful. There's another way we need to guard our hearts, see. We can subtly begin to promote and defend whatever a candidate or party does. In a similar way, we can easily find ourselves blindly supporting or habitually siding with certain candidates or parties without biblically assessing what they are saying or standing for. What's more, we can be hesitant to hold a candidate or a party accountable when they are saying or doing things that do not align from, with uh, Scripture. And so he brings out this poll that was done in 2012, asking white evangelicals uh, how important moral character was to them in voting for uh, president. And 70% said there's extremely high. Four short years later, uh, in 2016, uh, when they were asked the same group, was same, asked the same question, only 30% said it was important. Hmm. And uh, he said, he goes, all I'm saying is it's, worth at, it's at least worth us asking why that shift occurred. And so as we engage in this things, uh, all this stuff, we want to, um, you know, ask hard questions of the political party that we support, ask hard questions of the political party that does not resonate with our values and such, and make sure that we are reminding ourselves that no party holds a monopoly on justice, only Jesus does, only Jesus does. So, and, and that's, that's something that every Christian has to do um, a good job before uh, the Lord in, because again, it, it'd be easier to just go, you know what, I'm afraid of that happening, so I'm not going to engage. Can't do that. Yeah. yeah. Good. Okay. Well, the next question here, um, we'll jump to this one. It's what does my neighbor need? And we can probably be a little bit quicker with yeah. this question. Yeah. The other, the other two are kind of more foundational. Uh, but this is an important point that he brings up is he says, if you look at uh, political um, commercials and ads and rallies for that matter, what the candidate is almost always doing is appealing to the individual saying, hey, if you vote for me, you're going to get what you desire. You're going to get the things that you want. And it's all about that. And so he, can, he says it's very easy for this to um, shape our hearts in the way that we see politics. Hey, what engaging in the political realm is all about me getting what I want me getting my yeah. desires met. Now, that doesn't mean that could take the form of a certain kind of handout, uh, that could take the form of a certain kind of protection, you know, whatever. Yeah. But uh, what the point he makes, he goes, when does Jesus woo us with promises of everything we want in this world? You know, he doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> Only There is someone in Scripture who does that, the devil, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's not to say the, the political realm is, is the devil's realm. Uh, uh, I'm not, I'm, it's a fallen, but it's, uh, yeah. it's, uh, I'm not saying that. But if so, rather than enga- if you're going to engage in the political realm in a Christ-like way, rather than just thinking about your needs, your desires, and what you want, be thinking about, because if, if the call, if the biblical call to engage in the political process is to do justice, then we need to be thinking about our neighbor. 
we need to be thinking about others. So how do these policies impact people that we are biblically called to care for? You know, so that's an important part of that process, and that's a long list of, of people. And we'll get into more direct policy stuff a little bit later, but um, uh, that's just a, a good thing to think about, uh, that when you're engaging in politics, it's not all about you. But engage in the political sphere, thinking about doing justice for others. Uh, Augustine uh, talked about how you're never going to have a just society unless you inculcate virtue into the heart of every member of that society. The more virtuous a society becomes, the more justice can be done. And so if you're going to engage in politics in a Christ-like way, you need to make sure that you're doing it by inculcating virtue into the way they're even approaching it, right? And so that's the point of saying, it's a, this is about loving my neighbor, not just about me. Good, good. All right, well, next question um, that uh, Platt asks us and that I want to ask you is this one. Uh, am I eager to maintain unity in the church? Yeah. Well, um, you know, one of the reasons why this is a very relevant dialogue is because um, the nation is quite polarized, the nation is quite divided over political philosophy, um, over uh, public policy, and the thing that's interesting about politics is that it's, it's now politicians like to make it cut and dry and easy to understand. It's this or that. But because there's only two parties that really, obviously there's more parties running. I just was looking at the ballot and there's some really bizarre parties named there. But, but anyway, <laughs> like I didn't even know that was a thing. But anyway, yeah. uh, but there's two primary parties that um, uh, hold power. And because of that, you get this sort of package deal with whichever side you uh, vote with, and uh, therefore it's such a large package that when you're trying to think through what is the most just party or uh, what, what is, uh, how does justice, um, uh, how is justice represented in each party platform and such, there is a lot of things to consider, a whole lot of things to consider. And when there's that many different things that are there to consider and that matter to people, there becomes the opportunity for things to become quite divisive. So the division that we see happening in culture, one of the things as a pastor I am concerned about is that that same division would enter into the church and disrupt the unity of the church. Remember, the most, the, the thing that God has instituted the church to do primarily is to preach the gospel, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Jesus mentioned in uh, John 17 that if we are one, as Jesus and the Father are one, meaning the church, if we're in unity, then the result of that is that people will believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that he was sent by the Father. That's a, there's a lot riding on that unity. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the uh, non-Christians actually going, there's something there. And so if we allowed something like politics to come in and uh, bring division in the church, um, then we're allowing the integrity of what we were called to do to be eroded. And that's, that's a big deal. So what he talks about is some ways to make sure that as you engage in this uh, political realm, that you do so by always asking the question, am I eager to maintain unity in the church? Or am I going to say, because you have this political persuasion, therefore you are not a Christian? Or something like that, where, where we actually are against one another, that our political loyalties are more, are higher than our biblical 
loyalties to one another in the, as being members of the body of Christ. And he uses Romans 14 as a way of understanding that, and uh, you know, a couple different things with that passage uh, in Romans 14, where it says that each one should be fully convinced in their own mind as it relates to opinions. That's what Romans 14 is all about, is saying, how do Christians um, deal with things when they have, when they don't agree, uh, when there's uh, matters of opinion, where they dis- disputable matters. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> now, certainly in the area of public policy, there's things that you would call um, a straight line issue that is clearly a biblical issue, and other stuff that are more squiggly line issues <laughs> that straws. Um, you have to, yeah, you have to kind of go, okay, I understand, you know, and we'll get to that a little later. But when you're, and so you, there's things that are just, okay, black and white, this is clearly a biblical position. The other things where there can be a diversity of opinion, man, oh man, we have to embrace the complexity of the political realm to understand there's a lot of things that people who are really trying to serve Jesus uh, and honor Christ with their vote and with their engagement in the political sphere are doing it to honor God. And if we forget that, then we will um, disrupt our disrupt our unity. But what he makes a point is saying, it doesn't mean you can't have strong opinions. Yeah. Romans 14 actually encourages us to be firmly, fully convinced in your own mind about these opinions you have. So it's not you should go, hey, you think this, I think that, it doesn't really matter. Let's just give each other a hug, man. No, this stuff matters. It really matters. So how can you have strong opinions and disagree and still have unity? He gives us the um, uh, the key, Paul does, saying don't pass judgment on those who think differently or and don't despise them, hmm. right? You know, if people have a certain liberty, yeah. uh, don't, de- don't despise them for having that liberty, in the that it was about eating food sacrificed to idols, and then don't pass judgment on those who don't have that liberty. And so, if you hold that principle um, uh, close at hand, saying what's more important to me, because understanding my primary obligation as a Christ follower is to uh, carry out the call of the church, which is to proclaim the gospel, and we need unity to do that well. Um, that we draw, you know, understand where we can uh, biblically disagree and still be in unity. Yeah, that's good. And I think that uh, one thing that's interesting about Romans 14, um, when Paul is talking about that, is he says, be firmly convinced in your own minds. And then on that specific issue, um, it was an issue with an actual right answer as well. It wasn't yeah. like there were yeah. two opinions that were equally as valid and morally right. right? Yeah. There was an actual right answer to that question, and Paul enumerates that answer. But at the same time, he says, yes, there is a right answer, but this is not a, a command that binds the conscience to believe this way. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, because of that, he says, you might be right, yeah. But look what you're doing in your rightness. Well said. Look what yeah. you're doing while you're right. And so I think, I think again, that's not to say um, this isn't a relativistic approach Absolutely of going, not. well, yeah. this policy, this policy, who's to say? Just opinions. Who cares? Unity. No, there, there might be an actually right answer. There might be a more just, more righteous, better answer, better platform, mm-hmm. whatever that may be. Yeah, absolutely. But in our rightness, are we just destroying the people that we're called to love and yeah. care for? And be in unity with. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And so that's an important thing. 
All right. Well, with that being said, let's turn to the the yep. last segment here and uh, talk about how to. Let's get into the uh, the nitty gritty, <laughs> so to speak, yep. and talk about how do we actually do this? How do we weigh the issues? Um, how do we vote? What are some ways that we can thoughtfully approach uh, platforms, policies, and different things um, that will be Christ-like, as you said, but also p- particularly thoughtful and careful? And yeah. So take us through that. Yeah. Good. Well, um, as I mentioned before, there's straight line issues and squiggly line issues. Um, or wiggly line issues, <laughs> wavy lines, whatever. <laughs> I've heard you. it both ways. <laughs> um, and so what I want to provide is just three policy um, or, or areas that um, fall into three, one, three different categories. One is a straight line issue from top to bottom, meaning that there's only one clear Christian position on this issue. Another one where um, the uh, it's a straight, it's straight for a while, but then it gets wiggly. I'll explain what that means. <laughs> okay. And one that's pretty much wiggly all the way through. Sure. Um, and uh, so the first thing you want to do in ask in weighing out the issues is seek to understand the biblical clarity. Uh, what does Scripture say, not just other Christians who you dig, um, think about these issues, but what does Scripture say about these issues? And so one, uh, probably the, mo- the classic straight-line issue in uh, our culture is abortion. Uh, you know, the Christian position from top to bottom on abortion is that murder is wrong, that all life has dignity and is precious to God. And so uh, the killing of an unborn child is never okay. And so there should be no agreement or disagreement rather in the uh, Christian uh, community about whether or not abortion should be legal or illegal. Yeah. Um, now, where that line can get, uh, it, you know, that's pretty much straight from right uh, top to bottom. There's a little wiggle on how, because it is legal in our land, how do you go, what's the best way of going about um, policy-wise changing that? Yeah. Is it through the courts? Is it through legislation? Is it through educating the public and having a change of heart that leads to a different vote, et cetera, et cetera? Um, so, I, you know, you could have a all all in sundry approach to that, but uh, there, there can be some, I think there, it's fair to say there can be some disagreement on how do we go about um, making this uh, atrocious um, uh, precedent, uh, lawful precedent in our land be overturned. So the goal should be the same, but how you go about it, I understand that there's um, uh, a diversity of uh, opinion on that, but that, that that's a, there, there should be no disagreement on that though. That this is wrong, For absolutely sure. wrong. And let me just uh, jump in here. When you say straight line, and so just to clarify a little bit, um, <clears throat> what that means is that there is a straight line from a biblical command to a certain policy, yeah, or or yeah. you know, thank you, something like that. And so that's what we mean by straight line and squiggly line issues. There is a <laughs> yeah. biblical command. There is a policy. This is a, a straight direct line. Whereas a squiggly line issue or a wiggly line issue or a bendy straw issue yeah. <laughs> is where you have maybe some biblical principles. You know, something like love your neighbor, for example, uh, welcome the foreigner and the immigrant. Okay, but what does that relate to in terms of actual policy? Sure. Well, it's a very bendy line, and th- there's some diversity of opinion on how we apply this biblical principle. To to X policy, whatever that is. And so yeah. just, just to Thank clarify you for that. a little bit. Thank you sure. for the clarification, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, with abortion, straight line, top to yeah. bottom, policy should be clear, illegal. It's not up for debate from a Christian point of view. Uh, now, another uh, op, uh, idea or a policy issue would be care for the poor, mm. okay? Clear biblical call to care for the poor, both in the Old and New Testament. So part of doing justice, which is... Um, um, 
you know, the, the, the church has a role here. All kinds of various institutions have a role in caring for the poor, but government is also engaged in that. Um, and so what should government's uh, role be in caring for the poor? There has to be some... Um, so that, that so it's a clear biblical concept, a pr- clear biblical mandate to care for the poor. That's part of doing justice. Where it gets wiggly is what's the best policy? And there's a lot of debate on that, obviously, amongst the two parties and just individuals and various Christians trying to figure yeah. out, no, I think this is the best way of going about it. And so as a Christian, how do you um, uh, try to figure out where you stand on that issue. Well, you look at scripture. So for example, there's um, one, uh, in terms of caring for the poor, uh, James says in chapter two of his book, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So super clear. If you just let people who are impoverished in some way uh, and you have means to help them and you neglect doing that, that's sinful. That's showing that your faith is dead. That's a strong statement. On the other hand, Paul in 1 Timothy 5 says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, and he has denied the faith and is worse than, he is worse than an unbeliever. So on the one hand, you have a scripture telling you that personal responsibility is matters, yeah. and on the other side, it's saying that we have an obligation to care for those who are in need. Policy is somewhere in the middle, yeah, right? Good yeah. policy is somewhere in the middle, and um, it's good in developing that to pour over places like the Proverbs and uh, other places uh, where you're employing wisdom to try to have an ongoing conversation about how we do that. I think from a Christian standpoint, we should not just, I think it would be wrong to only look at 1 Timothy 5.8 and go, you know what? It's up to them. Let's go move on. No, no, that, that would be a, a swinging way too far to, you're not listening to all of scripture there. Yeah. And so um, that's where the line gets more wiggly. And so it's up to faith communities and individuals look pouring over scripture saying, how can I um, and as, especially as it relates to how I vote and who I vote for and what, how I want to um, in some way shape, if you can, um, the uh, way a party leans in a certain area is recognizing how we care for the poor matters. So that's a wiggly line. That's a, a clear biblical um, call, uh, but it gets wiggly down below. Now, a third option is something that has very little sense of biblical clarity and it's basically wiggly all the way down, and that's taxes. There's only one clear thing we can see about taxes, and that's from Luke 20, where Jesus says, no, get rendered to Caesar what is Caesar. So we should pay our taxes. That's the only thing we can understand from a biblical standpoint. Now, what tax policy is best? Well, now, because there's no clear biblical uh, way of understanding that, we need to employ wisdom and have lots of discussion and try to do what we think is best. Uh, again, humbly approaching that situation. And uh, yeah, so those are just three examples of things that matter to people, you know, care for the less, those less fortunate, the unborn, and um, tax policy, which yeah. is not the uh, most popular thing to talk about, but I tell you, it matters, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. <laughs> Especially come tax time. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. The Ides of March. <laughs> 
Well, um, what we want to do next is um, uh, David Platt, he provides a, a grid that we can sort of run some of these different questions and policy positions and political issues through to uh, help us to be a little bit more thoughtful and careful. And so I'm going to turn it back to Jeremy, and he's going to show us a little bit about how this works. All right. So after it's all said and done, and you've thought through all these things, how can we come to our time to make a decision on how to vote, um, or even just as a way to continue to think through the issues, so that we're looking at all of the issues as a whole, putting them all together, and choosing our vote in a Christ-like, thoughtful, and caring way. Platt uh, offers this grid. Let me explain it to you. Um, on the one side, you have biblical clarity. So of the variety of issues, we have a, a number of them listed here, social, economic, environment, people, personality of the candidate, uh, foreign policy, and immigration. Uh, you know, from a biblical clarity standpoint, how clear is the Bible on uh, the importance of this issue? And then down here, practical consequences. So the farther it is this way is what are the practical consequences of voting for a particular party or candidate as it relates to that specific issue? So you could have a situation where um, the biblical clarity is high, but the practical consequences of that candidate doing anything about that issue might be quite low, in which case you'd put it here. So uh, to, get, to kind of flesh this out, uh, social. So what is social? Social, that has to do with um, uh, things like abortion or sexual ethics or anything in that sphere. Um, uh, the reality is right now in our country, we are uh, in the middle of a moral revolution. And anyone who has a biblical morality or biblical view of morality uh, ought to be incredibly concerned about the tide of culture. And so um, that's true of just where culture is at, but where it relates to the political realm is you have, uh, you know, two parties who are taking different standpoints on those social issues, on those issues of, of, the, of those places of morality. So does the Bible care about biblical, mora biblical morality? Yep. So the biblical clarity is quite high. The next thing you have to look at is, the, again, the practical consequences. And so when you're looking at your candidate... The issue's high, but uh, the candidate that you like or the party that you're uh, considering to vote for is what are the practical consequences of that um, uh, moral revolution? Are, is voting for them, is their platform going to help in that, uh, uh, with that revolution? Is it going to push it back? Is it going to accentuate it? What are the consequences? And you want to do that same thing with all of the issues, the economic issues. Uh, and personality is another one that is very important to people. Actually, uh, the, the social issues and the personality of the candidate are things that drive most voters. Uh, actually, personality more than anything. A lot of times people uh, choose to vote one way or another just based on the impression they get without thinking through all of the issues. So again, if we want to vote and engage in the political sphere in a Christ-like way, one of the things that we want to do is think through all of the issues, understand where they line up from a uh, biblical clarity position and the pr uh, practical consequences, and put them on the grid here. So the idea would be anything in this quadrant is something that is both biblically clear and has a high degree of consequence. You want to pay attention to those. And so after it's all said and done, you might have things, and this is not to suggest that this is the way it should be from a Christian standpoint, we just have to put these up here, is that once you've done this, it might not, at the end of the day, change the way you are already choosing to vote, but what it can do is it can assure you that um, 
you are engaging in the political process and in, in engaging in the process of voting, you can be assured that you're doing it in a Christ-like way because you've thought it through. It's certainly thoughtful, certainly caring, and you're doing your very best to not just vote with your gut instinct, but to think it through from a biblical standpoint and see where things lie. So I hope that's helpful to you. After all the things we've talked about here, that uh, you're wanting to ask some important questions as you engage in uh, all of this, uh, as you engage in the political sphere, something that very much matters and something that really matters that we do in a Christ-like way, a thoughtful way. So I hope this helps by going through this process. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope that you check out David Platt's book, uh, Before You Vote, Seven Questions That Every Christian Should Ask, and we'll see you next time.